can open up your Bible to the book of Matthew. Uh, that's where we're going to be here in a moment. But I want to say a, a few things b- before we get into the text today. Uh, one is just a special welcome to you if you're a guest. Uh, I know it's Christmas time. Some of you may be from out of town. Some of you may be visiting even with a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa this morning. So thanks to you, whether you live locally or you're from out of town, for worshiping with us and starting your morning, your week. Christmas week with us. Uh, we, we would love, especially if you do live locally, we'd love to get to know you better and meet you. And uh, one way that you could do that even this morning, after the sermon, um, you could take the bulletin that you received, and there's a thin strip of paper in there called a connection card. It takes like one minute to fill out. Uh, you could write down some basics of, of who you are, and then take it out into the lobby, and when you hit the Christmas tree, turn left. Don't literally run before you get there, turn left. There's a counter uh, called the Welcome Center where some folks will be who'd love to talk to you, get to know you a little bit, uh, and uh, share some about our church and answer questions that you may have. But we're grateful that you're here with us and would love to see you uh, get more connected with the Lord, get more connected even with us as a church family here. Wanted to also note in that same bulletin, you probably noticed, or that may have fallen out sometimes that happens as you're walking, there should be little cards that are in there, or one at least in your bulletin. That's to remind you, or let you know, goodness, I got a second one, there we go, uh, to let you know that we have a Christmas Eve service Tuesday night at 6.30 here in this same room. We'll do a lot of scripture readings and singing of Christmas carols. We'll have a short uh, children's story time. We'll even end the evening with singing Silent Night by Candlelight, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, But this is to remind you, but also for you to take maybe even today to walk over to a neighbor's house or somebody in your neighborhood uh, to take that over to them and invite them, especially if they don't know Christ, if they don't uh, attend a church, invite them to come with you that evening. And uh, that'll be a very straightforward, simple recounting of Jesus becoming one of us and why he came. Uh, And so it'd be a great opportunity to invite uh, friends or or family to come with you. Uh, But uh, if you found Matthew 1, we're going to read this morning a very simple account of the birth of Jesus. That's what Christmas is about after all. And I, I was thinking about this. Some of you, or many of you probably have nativity sets uh, in your apartments or in your homes. And I was thinking that this is the season of the year, and appropriately so, where we like to contemplate the birth of Jesus and some of those early events of his life, the things that led up to his birth, the things that uh, unfolded uh, soon after it. And it's fascinating for me sometimes as I look at those nativity sets or as I just let my mind wander uh, to imagine what those events really were like. We get to read about some of them in the Bible itself, but there's a lot left to our imagination of what uh, this baby was like, how he uh, started to, to function as a human being as he began his life. And one of the things I've imagined this week was him taking his first step. That would be fascinating. We're not privy to know what that was like, but I could imagine Joseph kind of holding uh, the, the hands, letting uh, the, the 10-month-old or however old he was, Jesus, kind of grab onto his fingers uh, as he was getting ready to walk and then to take those tumbling first steps towards his mother Mary and then cheering him on and being so excited. That would be fascinating to see God, the Son, learning to walk and learning to take steps and taking those early steps as a human The reason I've thought about that is because I was thinking that that is not the first time God walked on the earth. Thousands of years before that, God walked on the earth. We talked about this a couple Sundays ago, but I know many of you weren't here. But if you read the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of our story as human beings, back in the Garden of Eden, that place that God created on our planet, 
Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, we, we hear back in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of time, the first days of human existence. Genesis 3, 8 says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in cool of the day. Now, he wasn't a human being. Uh, he wasn't literally walking with feet, but he was walking with and we see from the very beginning of time God's intent to live with human beings. Them to walk with us, him to, to speak with us, us to have fellowship with him. But what we saw happen, and we saw this a couple Sundays ago, was very quickly that went away. That, that sweetness, that fellowship with God, of walking with God, him walking with us, that went away quickly. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, just like we would have and just like we do. Today, they disobeyed God. In Genesis 3, that same chapter says that God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Just drove them out, away from his presence. And human beings, ever since then, have been unable, unable to come back to God on our own. Even if we wanted to, even if our hearts were softened and we wanted to come back to God, we wanted to have fellowship with him, we are not able to on our own. That is the, the problem of human existence is that we cannot get back to God on our own. We can't return to him. We can't return to that state of fellowship with him. But praise God, and we're going to see in this text today, that God had a commitment from the beginning to bring us back to him. That he was committed to doing that. To fixing what was broken. To opening back the way to return to him. God was committed to that even when we were unable to. And we hear back in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve were driven away from the garden, driven away from God, that God gave them a promise. He let them hear a promise that someday there was going to be an offspring of theirs. Someday there was going to be a real human being, a flesh and blood person who was going to crush the head of the serpent who had tempted them, to defeat evil and to bring us as human beings back to God. That there was going to be a human rescuer to come. For thousands and thousands of years, that did not happen. There was thousands and maybe millions of people that came into existence, but there was no rescuer. There was no human being who was up to that task of bringing us back to God, bringing us back to fellowship with him. But what we're going to see today is that God would have to walk the earth again. God would have to become a human being. He'd have to become that rescuer that he had promised. And so what we're going to see in today's text is this very simple message that by becoming one of us, by becoming one of us, Christ was able to bring us back to God. That was the only way it could happen. By him becoming one of us, Christ was able to bring us back to God. So found Matthew 1. We're going to read Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. This is one of the most simple, short explanations of one of the most profound, miraculous, mysterious events in all of human history, that God became a human being, is recounted in just a handful of verses here by Matthew. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it and, and see how Christ became one of us in order to bring us back to God, in order to take us back to his presence. So let, let's read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Follow along with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. We're going to approach this text in two parts, so I'd encourage you to keep it open. I want to show you some things uh, in here, but we're going to break it into two chunks this morning. We're going to see how Christ became a human, but under these two headings. We're going to look first at the narrative of the parents, and then second, we're going to look at the names of the sons. So first we're going to see the the narrative, the story of Mary and Joseph. Jesus is a central figure here, right? But Mary and Joseph are are very clearly mentioned. They're a significant part of the story of Christ becoming a human being, an inseparable part of it. And so this is an incredibly short summary of of what took place even between those two, which would be fascinating to be a fly on the wall of their conversation uh, as they uh, received these news and how they responded and we get a picture a little picture of the drama in a sense between Joseph and Mary between this husband and wife where they were engaged we'll see Uh, but we get a picture a, a glimpse into some of the drama between the two of them that led up to the birth of Christ and Joseph interestingly him in particular he features prominently here we often talk about Mary and rightfully so but Joseph in Matthew's account looms very large looms very significant Uh, in the narrative of how Jesus came to be. And what we're going to see, what I want to show you first, is when you look at this relationship between Joseph and Mary, and the way that they interacted, and particularly the way that Joseph interacted with Mary, you're going to see, you're going to get a glimpse into God's heart for his bride. As we see Joseph's heart, his commitment to his bride, you're going to get a little glimpse into God's heart for his bride. So follow along with me. First, I want you to see Joseph's commitment to his bride. This would have been uh, a confusing, disorienting thing for Joseph. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about his perspective very much before, but what happens here, what unfolds this story, this true story of how Jesus entered our world is this. It starts with Joseph finding out that his fiance is pregnant. She is found to be with child, we are told. We don't know how he finds out. We don't know who told him. We don't know if she told him. We don't know if she told relatives and they told him. We don't know. But she is found to be with child. And Joseph, as every human being, including you, if you know about how babies are conceived, he assumes that she has been with another man. He assumes that she's been intimately involved with another man because he knows they've not been uh, intimately involved together. And we get to read in verse 18, we get to read with the narrator's eyes that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 18. Joseph did not know that. That's why this dream had to take place, right? He just finds out that she is pregnant and assumes that it's by another man. And so he devises this initial plan. 
He devises this plan where uh, you see in verse 19 it says that being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So there's these descriptions of Joseph and what he was like. He's just and he didn't want to put her to shame. He devises this plan. It says that he resolved, this is the end of verse 19, resolved to divorce her quietly. So this was an interesting setup. This was an arrangement where uh, it's somewhat similar to us being engaged in our culture today. When it says that they were betrothed together, in a sense they were already married, but in another sense they weren't. They were they're talked about as husband and wife in some ways, uh, yet they've not been uh, functioning fully as husband and wife. Uh, they are engaged. That would be the closest similarity to us. But yet there's enough of a connection that if it was going to be broken off, it would be called a divorce. It would be called a, a divorce in their culture. And so Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. And you can make what you will of Joseph here, but I think at least in some ways this is understandable, that he would resolve to divorce her. Remember it says that he was a just man. That, that in his understanding prior to this dream and in every other person other than Mary and maybe the people that, who would have believed her, everyone else would have thought that she had been unfaithful to Joseph. That was the assumption. That was the default. And he was probably confused by this, I imagine. Because he knew Mary's character. He, he knew what she was like. He was probably confused. And as she's probably trying to tell him, I've not been with another man, he is conflicted wanting to believe her, but also knowing that every other baby who has ever been conceived before then or since then, that would not be the case, uh, that, that you have been unfaithful. And so he resolves to divorce, he resolves to end uh, this relationship, thinking and assuming that she's been unfaithful to him and not wanting to set a trajectory in life of, of a wife who'd be repeatedly unfaithful to him and breaking the covenant promises. But he note that he resolved, though, to divorce her quietly. That's an important thing to see in Joseph. He resolved to divorce her quietly. And this would make sense because it says that Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. So even though he was seemingly assuming that she'd been unfaithful to him, he did not want to smear her. He did not want her to be looked down upon. He did not want her to be ashamed and be ridiculed by her loved ones and by her town. So he resolved to divorce her quietly. This would maybe have been the equivalent to what we would call like an out-of-court settlement. Not wanting to go through all the channels of, of public, uh, having public scrutiny and eyes upon this, but wanting to quietly end their relationship, quietly let her go on her way and not uh, run her through the mud, not uh, smear her name in public. He resolved to divorce her quietly. But I know for you, he's not hasty in doing this, right? Verse 20 says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel He's considering these things. He's not just rushing to, to get rid of her and see her as, as a person to just get rid of and be done with. He's considering these things. He's trying to think, what do I do? And God in his kindness sends an angel to him in a dream. And we see that his plan changes, right? So this angel comes to him in a dream and speaks to him and says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your he says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, verse 20. That would have made me wake up right in the middle of that dream, okay? To think that this baby is supernaturally placed within her womb, that this baby was given by the Holy Spirit, not by another man, no. That this baby, the, the origin of this baby was not by another man, Joseph, 
lived by the Holy Spirit. He placed them in his mind. And it would have been maybe even more mind-boggling in this dream is that he could, this angel continued, that that wouldn't have been crazy enough that this baby was placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit. The angel continued and says that she'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's told to Joseph. Like we like to imagine great things for our kids as they enter into the world, but he tells Joseph, this son of Mary is going to save the world. He's going to rescue people, rescue humanity from their sins. This was the baby Joseph, I think, would have known. This is the baby, this is the person that long ago in the Garden of Eden was promised to us. This is the one God told us about long ago is now in the womb of my fiance. Whoa. And so he changes his plan, as I think all of us would. I hope all of us would. He wakes up, and the narrator tells us that, uh, that he uh, took Mary to be his wife, just as the angel commanded, but didn't know her, wasn't intimately involved with her, read that way, until she'd been given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, just like the angel had told him to do. So Joseph, he spares her from shame, right? Everyone else in the world and in his culture would have understood if he divorced her, if he let her go her own way, if he parted ways with her, but he leans into this. He stays faithful to his commitments to Mary. He continues to, he marries Mary. He, he, he takes her as his wife and is faithful to her throughout this whole process. And in doing so, I want you to think how everybody else would have seen this. Because even if they start to say, oh, this baby's from the Holy Spirit, mom and dad, they're like, yeah, right, yeah, right. Uh, so everybody else would have assumed things about Joseph now as well. So there's this shame probably would have even come upon him. There's this difficulty that would have come to him even for being faithful to this bride. What I want you to see in this narrative of the parents of Mary and Joseph and Joseph's commitment to his bride is I want you to see a little picture, a little glimpse into God's heart for his bride. God's commitment to his bride. Because many times, I don't think it's a coincidence that the New Testament we're reading now starts this way. Because many times in the Old Testament, in the hundreds and thousands of years that preceded this, God has spoken of himself as a husband and his people as a wife. He had talked about himself as husband and his people as a wife, as a bride. But there's differences here, right? With Joseph and Mary, Mary had not been unfaithful to Joseph. She had been faithful to him. He thought she had been unfaithful, but she had been faithful to him. Not so with God's people. Not so with God's bride. Not so with us. We have been unfaithful to him over and over and over. The people of Israel have been unfaithful to God over and over and over again. And what Joseph had suspected of Mary before that dream, God knew about his bride. He knew we'd been unfaithful. He knew we had been unfaithful to him. And God, like Joseph, is just. God is just, and he had every right, it would have been understandable to him, he had every right to look at his bride, to look at his people and say, you have been unfaithful to me so many times, I am done. 
go away from me. Like this relationship is over. I do not want to be with you anymore. He could have kept us away from him forever. That would have been just. Praise God. Just like Joseph, but in an even grander scale, he was unwilling to put us to shame. God looked at us, the unfaithful ones, said, I will not put them to shame. I will not let them reap the consequences that, that their sins deserve. And he was committed to resolving this. He, he was committed to restoring us. And while Joseph resolved initially to, to divorce his bride quietly, God had resolved from the very beginning to reconcile with his bride and to do it very publicly. And he did that in the sin he did not want to keep us away. He was committed in spite of our unfaithfulness to, to pursue us, to win us back, to draw us back to himself. So in Joseph's commitment to his bride, we get a little glimpse of God's heart for his bride, his commitment to his people in spite of our sin. But this story is not ultimately about Mary and Joseph, is it? I hope that goes without saying. The story is about Jesus. And in this text, uh, there's names that are given to there's names that are attributed to him that I want us to look at, and two in particular, because I think they help fill out this story and what's going on, why God sent him, and what's going on in this narrative. If, if God's commitment to his people was pictured in the story of, of Mary and Joseph, then it's also embedded in the name of Jesus. It's embedded in the names of the son uh, that they would raise together. And so we're going to look at these two names Jesus. And names feature prominently in this text, don't they? If you have a Bible open, we're not going to read it. Um, but if the new, this is the New Testament starting, Matthew 1, starting in verse 2, actually starting in verse 1, the very first verse, there's name upon name upon name upon name upon name, where, where Matthew is just rattling off all these names of Jesus' ancestors. Because long ago, this promise had been made to a man named Abraham, and he wants you to see that through all those names, God was faithful to fulfill those promises. And names in that day carried far more significance than they do now. We, most people name our kids things today just because we like how it sounds. Or because we think, oh, that's a cool name. Like, and, and we may give some thought to it. It may be tied to a relative or a person we respect. But names carried far more significance in biblical. They had far more intentionality in how they would name children. And when this child was to be born, there's two names in particular that this text tells us should be, he should be called. Names that should be given to him. And the first one is Emmanuel. Or at least the first one we'll look at this morning, Emmanuel. And this was more, you see this in verse 23. This name, Emmanuel, was more, I would say, more a description than an actual name. Okay? Uh, because it meant God with us. That's what the name Emmanuel means, is God with us. It's not as if when, uh, if you imagine those first steps of this child, it's not as if they're like, yay, Emmanuel, good steps. Like, they're not calling him Emmanuel. And when he gets older, Joseph isn't saying, hey, Emmanuel, time for dinner. Like, that's not what they would call him. It wasn't his common name. But it was a description to describe him, a, a title almost, a, a name in that sense that was to be given to this child, Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is significant, that this baby was to be called God with us. Because we've seen, if you've been here the last couple Sundays, you've seen this, but even if not, you can just listen for a moment. But 
God, in a sense, had lived with his people at different points in time throughout the Old Testament, even prior to Jesus coming. We saw it in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, we just talked about that a few minutes ago, that he lived with them in the Garden of Eden. But even between the Garden of Eden and the birth of Jesus, there was these couple points in time and eras in time which God, in a sense, had lived with his people. There was this tent that he had had the people of Israel build, for example, called the Tabernacle, where in a cloud, not as a human, but in a, a cloud, God would come and rest. He would dwell in the middle of this tabernacle, in the middle of this tent, in the center of his people. And then for a long season, when, when God's people had got into a more stable place in the land of Israel, they built a building called a temple, where it was even grander and more beautiful. God, in a sense, dwelled there in the Holy of Holies. And we saw even last Sunday, if you were here, that because God's people kept disobeying him, eventually, just like he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, he kicked them out of the land he had and he sent them into exile. He sent them away from his presence in the temple. But he told them, even in exile, I will be with you. Like even in those lands far away that I'm sending you as a, a judgment, I'll still be with you. But what we see in all those circumstances is that God's presence was limited. There was not the fullness of his presence. There was not the fullness of relationship with him like there had been back in the Garden of Eden. Because our sin remains. Our, our problem of, of sinful heart remains. There was no human being who could go back into the presence of God and say, I, here I am righteous, like accept me. Like none of us could do that. No human being could do that. Our sin was still on our heads as human beings. And that exile that had started in the Garden of Eden where God sent humans away, it was still in effect. Even when God gave these little glimpses of his presence, these little partial senses of his presence. And what we needed desperately as human beings was what the Bible calls a mediator. We needed someone. There was this chasm, this gap, this breach between God and human beings. And no human being could come back to God. None of us were capable of it. And we needed someone. We needed that human being that God had said would come to come and be a mediator between us be the one who could make things right, who could deal with the problem of sin, and who could take us back to God, who could return us back into full and perfect fellowship with him. This needed to be a person who could represent God and human beings at the same time, who, who could represent both, and that is precisely what we see when Jesus is born. That's why he's called God with us because he became a human being, a unique human being. As he is obviously a human being. We can at least say that, right? When you read this text, even the short handful of verses we read today, there is clue after clue after clue that he was actually a flesh and blood human being like me and you. A couple of things that, that you know from this text. One, he was conceived in her, the angel said to Joseph. He was conceived in her. He, he grew in a womb just like every single one of us in this room. He is called a son. He says unto her, a son is given. Okay? Not an angel, not some other thing. A son is given. And most of all, note that Matthew records for us that this angel tells Joseph, he will save who? 
his people from their sins. He's a human being. She gave birth, it says. Verse 25 says that. He entered this world in many ways, in most respects, just like us. He it was and is to this day a full human being. He could represent human beings. But this child was not just a mere human being. He was also divine. He was also God, which is mind-bending for us to think about. But he is God with us. And you get clues of that here, and it unfolds through the rest of Jesus' life even more clearly with tons more evidence, but even here at the beginning in this text, you see hints and clear indicators that he was divine. That he was not just man, but he was God. This angel told Joseph that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not from another man. It's not as if this baby just was, was placed in her womb through normal natural means and then somehow he became God later. Like some people try to argue, but from the beginning, from the start of when he was a one cell in Mary's body, he was conceived from the Holy Spirit. And no, even more miraculously, he was in the womb of a virgin. 20, verse 23. The virgin shall conceive. An indication that this baby was not just a mere human. He was fully human. But he was more than that. He was also divine. I love the song we sang earlier. This, I leaned over to my son and said, this is one of my favorite Christmas lyrics where we sang about Jesus. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead speak. Hail, and then hear these two words, incarnate deity. He is a human being who is God. From day one of his life in the womb of Mary, he is a human being full as full can be, and he is God, full as God can be. No other human being before or since can say that. But it is true of Jesus, and it was so that he could be that mediator that we mentioned. It is so that he could be that human being that God promised who could bring us back to God, who could take us back to him, who could represent us as human beings, but also represent God and bring us back to him. Some people like to think that Jesus just God the Son, because he had existed in eternity, that he became a human being to be able to sympathize with us, to be able to feel our hurt and to know our pains and know our struggles and to, to show us how to live. He did become human for those purposes. We have a, a, a God who's become a human being to, to sympathize with us and show us what life as a human is to be like, but he came to do way more than he did not just come to sympathize with us. He came to save us. And that is what this second name of this baby communicates to us. That he didn't just come to be our brother, to be our friend. He came to be our savior. He came into this world to bring us back to God. The second name is the one we usually refer to him as is the name Jesus. This is a significant thing. When, when the angel comes to Joseph in this dream, he tells him, one of the significant things is he tells him what to name the son. A, they knew it was going to be a boy, which is like pre-ultrasound. They know it's going to be a boy. They're not surprised when a boy comes out. But he even tells him what to name him. He gives Joseph that responsibility. 
to name this son, to give him his earthly name. And he tells him to name him Jesus. I don't know if you know this, this probably would have been a common name back then. There was probably a lot of other little boys running around Israel named Jesus. It was not as if it was some grand, unique name, but the reason that many of them were named that, that they were named Jesus, is because of what it meant. Because of what that name meant. That name means God saves. It was a form of the name Joshua that God saves. And so it makes sense in that lots of people are naming their sons God saves because they knew this promise God had given us. Someday there's going to be this Savior that comes. Someday there's going to be a Savior who comes to rescue you. So in hope, people kept naming their sons Jesus. They kept naming them Joshua. God saves, God saves, God saves. But when this angel tells Joseph to name him that, Know what he says that this, he actually, A, says this is going to be the boy who is it. Like this is the one who is going to be the savior. But know what he says he is going to save his people from. Verse uh, 21. He tells Joseph in this dream, name him Jesus because he's going to save his people. And he says he's going to save them from their Many people in Jesus' day, we don't know if Mary and Joseph would have been like this, but when they were thinking about a Savior that they hoped to come, they hoped that it would be a Savior from the Romans. Because the Romans were, were ruling over God's people at that time and in a sense oppressing them. And God's people wanted a Savior to come and get them off their back, to, to let them be free again as God's people. And while that would be a great and noble thing for a person to do, when God sent this baby into the world, when God sent his son into the world, it was to save them from something far bigger, far deeper, far more enduring, far more stronger. It's to save people, save his people from their sins. And this baby who is God and man, who is God with us, was uniquely able to actually do that. To do something that no human being before or since could do. To deal with the problem of sin. To actually bring humanity, to bring human beings back to God. Jesus was uniquely suited to do that. It's because, I would say this way, because he was Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Because he was Emmanuel, he could be Jesus, God's Savior. As this God-man, he could actually save. And this is what I mean. I want you to, to follow with me for a moment why Jesus was uniquely able to save us and bring us back to God. Think about his life, the 30, probably 33 years that he lived on this planet. As a human being, Jesus was actually able to keep God's law, to do what human beings were told to do, like to actually earn a good record with to obey and obey and obey and to deny self and to resist temptation. He was able to live as a human being and fulfill the law that God had given to us, that God had given to human beings. An angel could not do that. Uh, any other being could not do that. But Jesus was actually able to obey as a human, to earn a good record with the Heavenly Father. But as God, who's able to obey uh, but he, as God, he was able to do that perfectly. 
every other human being before Jesus and since Jesus, including every one of you and me, we could obey God partially. We could do some things that God calls you, but none of us could do it perfectly. Jesus could. He was not born with sinful heart like we are. He wasn't born with sinful tendencies like we are. He was able to obey God as a human, but to obey God perfectly because he's divine. From beginning of his life to the end, he was able to obey God perfectly, earning a good record with the heavenly father. Ultimately, his life culminates in a death that is of eternal significance to us. And because he is God and because he's man, he's able to do something in his death that no other person could do. Because Jesus was and is a human being, Jesus could serve as a substitute for us. If he was not a human being, he could not do that. An angel could not serve as a substitute for us. No, other, no animal could serve as a substitute for your punishment that you deserve and for the punishment for me, for the punishment I deserve. It took a human being to stand in our place, to die in our place upon the cross. And as a full human being, Jesus was able to do that. And that's what he did. When he went to the cross, though he was innocent, he took our sins upon himself. And God the Father crushed his foot. Like God, if we think being kicked out of the garden is bad. Imagine the wrath of God the Father for our sin being laid upon a person. That's what happened upon the cross. He filled in for us. He substituted for us as a human dying upon the cross. But as God, so he's not merely human, he's also divine. As God, he is able to bear the full wrath of the Father for millions if not It was just one human being who was a mere human being. He could maybe have died for me if he was righteous. Or he maybe could have died for you. One to one. But Jesus had a dimension about him. He had this infinite nature in him as God where he could bear the punishment of God for millions if not billions of people upon that cross. That no mere human being could do, but a, a God he would bear the sins for many people. He would suffer their punishment upon the cross. So he is able in his life and in his death as that God man to do what no person ever before or after could do. He could live and do it perfectly and he could die as a substitute and do it for many. And that is what took place in his life and death. And it's not just that he could do that. Praise God he did. He was capable of it at that first Christmas, in a sense, being God and man, but he actually accomplished it as an adult, dying in our place. And praise God, the story did not end there. God raised, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead. So if you think it's crazy that a baby was conceived in a womb of a virgin, it is more crazy that a dead man walked out of a tomb, never to die again. Now, he is in heaven with God the Father, that place human beings were designed to be in fellowship with God the Father. But the scriptures tell us that he ascended back to heaven to be with God his Father 
where he has come from and to be with him once and for all. And he has now having gone back to God, having dealt with the problem of our sin, now that he has gone back to God, he can be in love with us. Where no human being has gone before, he has gone. And that is where he is now, with God the Father. And he says to all of us, he will bring us with him if we turn in repentance and faith. He can bring us to God. We can't get there on our own, but he can bring us with him into presence, into right relationship with God forever. There's a text that's been bouncing around in my mind and heart this week. It's written by the Apostle Peter. It's in what we call 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. This text has has loomed large in my mind as I've thought about how human beings, we were kicked out from the presence of God. But God became one of us and lived for us and died for us so that we might be able to return to God. This text is so simple but so profound. Peter wrote this, speaking of this baby who grew up now. He says that Christ also suffered once for sin righteous for the unrighteous and the foolish as a result of his sin that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit that is what Jesus came to do was to bring us back to God he had to become a human being to do it he had to suffer on the cross for your sins and mine to do it and he has been raised from the dead now and gone back This text this morning ends with Joseph responding in obedience. I don't know what he thought when he woke up from that dream, but we know he obeyed that message that came from God. He did what God had told him to do through that angel. My question for you this morning is will you obey God? Will you obey God? I want you to know a phrase that, that we may just bounce our eyes over, but I want you to look back at verse 21. In this dream, this angel says, she will bear a son and she'll call his name Jesus. And then I want you to hear carefully what it says. He says, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, his work upon the cross and his resurrection didn't just instantly get applied to every human being who ever came before him or after him. He returns to God the Father, but those that he will bring with him to the Father are his people. Who is that? Who are his people? How, How do we know if we are part of his people? I would say there's many ways you could say this, but those who are his people are those who obey him. Those who do what he has called us to do, who respond to him the way he's called us to respond. And the message that you hear from the mouth of Jesus himself in the Bible, condensed down and summarized for us, is that he told people, he commanded human beings, he commands you now as you hear it, to repent of their sin and to believe the good news about him to repent of our sins and to believe this good news about him. That is the response he calls us to. 
We don't have to take some woman to be our wife who's conceived a baby in the womb. But we are called to obey the word of Christ when he tells us to repent and to believe the good news. And that will be how you know if you are his people or not. If you are restored to God or not is, am I repenting of my sins? Am I confessing those sins? Saying, God, I'm so sorry for how I've rebelled against you. And am I believing the good news? That the way that I get back to God is not through me just becoming good, but because of what Christ did for me in his life and his death and his resurrection. And if you obey that command from our Lord to repent of your sin and believe in the good news about him, then you become part of his people. You are welcomed by God the Father into his presence now and forevermore. Our bodies remain here, but our home becomes heaven. And your home can become heaven even this morning. You can belong to God fully and perfectly and have confidence that when you die someday, whether that's this week or next decade, uh, that well, three decades from now or five, that, that when you die, you can go and to be with God once and forever. So I'd ask you, are you going to obey our Lord Jesus? Because it's nice to think of him as some baby lame in a angels sang about and shepherds came to see, but he is not a baby in a manger. Amen. Those same feet that learned to walk and to take steps between Mary and Joseph, those same feet ultimately walked the cross. And those same feet of Jesus, a few days later, walked out of an empty tomb. And those feet of Jesus right now are on a footstool at the throne of heaven. He is there now and he invites you to come and be with him. And I have come into this world. I am God with us and I can bring us, I can bring you now to be with God. And so you obey him. Will you repent of your sins and put your trust in the work of Christ on your behalf? If you will, you will be with God now and forever because of the work of our Savior, our Lord.